And there it is, a signal that we can begin or that I can uh, begin without any uh, consequences. So we are at April 30th, 2017, lecture discussion number 281 on the book of Romans, or if you prefer, Genesis 2, 3, and 4 and Romans 5. Genesis 2, 3, and 4 is Romans 5. They're interchangeable. Either or all are acceptable. Okay, the plan is to continue to discharge as many pending issues as that we've accumulated as possible in as brief amount of time as is necessary, which means that I'll probably get rid of one question today in 55 minutes. I wrote this down thinking, wow, I'm going to do that's a joke. But as I kept going, I realized, uh-oh, when I read it just this afternoon or right here sitting here, I realized, wow, that was quite prophetic or prescient because that's pretty much what happened. Lots of questions remain to be properly negotiated, gone through. Uh, so we should be finished with what we have to deal with by maybe Thanksgiving 2018 for this section. Here's where we say we at Cliffside appreciate your continued patience. This is the time of year, and because this is the time of year, that the debate of the crucifixion week is at its most intensity. I was talking to Supper Dave, who may or may not exist, for those of you on the Internet, about this before we began. And, and uh, I received, I've already gotten letters and articles that pertain to the order of the crucifixion week. One from a fairly significant uh, theologian who takes the position that I think is difficult, really difficult to have. And I, a little bit disappointing that a man of his intelligence or his intellect and understanding would cling to this. So I thought, okay, if, if I'm getting these articles and these letters, then perhaps the rest of you are too. And I figured I'd begin this lecture today with a few references that I think are absolutely essential when you're talking about the order of the crucifixion week. Most of you have heard me do this before. And hopefully um, you have also been hearing me repeat this one aspect of it. All sevens return to the first seven. I've been saying that over and over, over again. All sevens return to the first seven. And what I mean by that is the creation seven is the first seven in the Bible. Not necessarily in order, I'll get that in a minute, but all sevens in order, the first mention of seven, of a seven, is the creation seven. So I've begun to point out, and I hope that it is getting through, that every time you find a seven in the Bible, you can be guaranteed that it is going to have a relationship to the creation seven. That's the point. The point being that the creation seven-day pattern in Genesis 7 will impact every seven in Scripture. So, in other words, you'll find the first seven in the tribulation seven. The tribulation's still an ob the sevens all through the tribulation. So, every time you see one, the seven trumpets, the seven seals, every seven, go and compare it to the first one. All return to the first. You also find the human history seven, or the seven thousand, the seven one thousand year periods of human history. The Daniel seventy week seven. The judgment seat of Christ, which is a seven, seven-year period, corresponds to the tribulation. That's just to name a few of them. They're everywhere. The Bible is filled with this seven system. But there can be no dispute 
at all, or there can be, and there is, unfortunately, that I have something that is just ridiculously obvious, uh, not ridiculously, uh, just so obvious that it can't be missed. The crucifixion seven is equal to the Passover seven. So we just went through a crucifixion and resurrection celebration here. Um, and that should be, if the church certainly doesn't know about it, that should be beat into its congregation every first fruits. Jesus Christ, the light of life, John 1, 9. I'll put these on the board as I go through them. Because there's a lot of them. Jesus Christ is the light of life, John 1, 9, John 8, 12. Genesis 1, 3 through 4. That's where he identifies himself as the light of life. He's the I am of Exodus 3, 14. And he made it obvious that he is also... With the light of life, with the I am, he is the Lamb of God. And when he says he's the Lamb of God, he means that he is the Passover Lamb. That is who he is. The Lamb of God and the Passover Lamb are the same. You could call it the Passover Lamb of God and you would be the most accurate. And that is, of course, John 1.29 among other places. Obviously, uh, uh, Revelation 5-6 as well. John 1-36. My point is, is that Jesus Christ is telling us to compare His crucifixion week with the Passover week at, at Exodus 12 through 14, chapter 12 through 14. That's the tenth plague and the Red Sea crossing. He is saying... Go and look at the Passover of Exodus 12 through 14, that seven-day period, and compare it to my crucifixion period, and you will find that they are identical in order. The Passover lamb, prior to the death of the firstborn, right? The tenth plague. The Passover lamb was taken and set aside on the tenth day. Everyone here knows that, maybe not so much on the the Internet, and was slain four days later on the fourteenth day. That happened to be Passover, the feast day of Passover. In the crucifixion week, most people don't know, there's three Sabbaths. So when it says, after the Sabbaths, Most Bibles only say Sabbath, and that's how we get the Saturday weekly Sabbath. But it says after the Sabbaths. Well, there's three of them. There's Passover, there's unleavened bread, and then there is the Saturday weekly Sabbath. Three of them in that week, just as there was in the Passover. The Passover lamb was taken and set aside on the tenth day, and his throat was cut on the fourteenth day. And and it said, and they said, it is finished. Right. And Israel crossed the Red Sea on the feast day of first fruits, which would be the, the first day or the first Sunday after the weekly Sabbath of that week. And that would be another Sabbath. So if you wish to think of it this way, there's actually four Sabbaths in that eight-day period. Does that make sense? I hope it does. I've said it here many times. 
So Israel crossed the Red Sea on the 18th day, eight days from the time the lamb was brought in and, the, and four days from the time that the blood was put on the door system, right? The threshold and the header and, and what I would call the tremors and the king studs, but that's just my terminology, not theirs. That was kind of a carpenter joke, but nobody laughed. Thank you for laughing at the fact that nobody laughed. I decided, as bad as I am at it, that I needed to be prepared for my career in the restoration of all things. So, being a framer and a so-called Finnish carpenter, not like Bill the Cow, who's ridiculous, I'm just kind of a hack at it, but at least I'm trying to do something that involves carpentry. Why am I doing that? Well what he did. I thought I'd at least have a job. That didn't work out. I noticed there were trumpet players. I didn't see piano players in heaven or guitar players. None of those. Trumpet looked like I'd have a place to play in the band. Billionth chair, wherever I am. Maybe I'd work my way up to billionth chair. <laughs> Got to, got to beat somebody, I hope. Maybe not. All right. Point is, is that Israel crossed the Red Sea on first fruits the 18th day from the 10th day, the first Sunday following the weekly Sabbath that comes after Passover and unleavened bread. That's the pattern. I've said it hundreds of times. The Passover 7 must line up with the crucifixion. It must line up. Whenever you begin to discuss what happened during the crucifixion 7, you must line it up with the Passover 7. Why? Ask why. Why must you line it up? I won't answer that. You can figure it out. Which means the crass, which means the crucifixion must be on Passover and must have the sign of Jonah between the crucifixion and the resurrection. The sign of Jonah, Matthew 12, 39 through 41. Christ said, I'm just going to give you guys, just going to give you guys one thing here. And that'll be the sign of Jonah. You evil, rotten, I'm adding rotten, stupid, I added stupid, generation, he says to the Pharisees. You're evil, you evil generation. I'm going to give you, you seek after signs and that makes you evil. Next time you want a sign, please God, lift that rock and hit my enemy in the head with it in front of me so I know you exist. He calls that evil. The Signs and Wonders Movement. Oh, my goodness. Read Matthew 12, 39 through 41. They don't. He's going to give you the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? Three days, three nights, 72 hours, and it has to be between the crucifixion and the resurrection. He said it. That's God that said it. I didn't say it. I realize there's great pressure and money provided to to defend the traditions of Gentiles. But this isn't a Gentile pattern. The Gentiles have changed the pattern. The reason they changed the Passover pattern, the reason that they removed the word Passover from the New Testament, from the Greek, is because, and and interjected in its place, 
Ishtar or Ister or Ishtarath or whatever. The reason they did that is because they wanted to eradicate in those times all Jewish references in the Bible and in Christianity. That's what they did. The church of the time began to hate the Jews. Is anybody surprised that the church hated the Jews? Isabella Ferdinand, Christopher Columbus, read with the Inquisition. Now, that this happened before that. But there was tremendous energy devoted to getting rid of all Jewish references and influences in the church. So they eliminated the Passover 7 from the crucifixion week. Just one of the things they did. But, again, the crucifixion week as we see it now is not uh, the Jewish system. Jesus Christ himself put his crucifixion week and the Passover week into the fabric of the Jewish society. So one day they would know who he really is. That he is the I Am. And any timeline that you come across, it must reflect the Jewish origin. Again, it's not a Gentile origin. The Gentiles have, if anything, we have corrupted it. But every year, here comes the onslaught this time of year of articles and materials that completely ignore the Jewish origin and the creation seven. And one could argue successfully, I might add, that the crucifixion is the first seven of all. In other words, the creation seven is based on the crucifixion seven. Because which one really did come first? John 17, 5, John 17, 24. Which was before the foundations of the world? One of the foundations of the world is, of course, time. Which one is before time? You can make the case that the crucifixion, the salvation plan, predates creation. So the first seven in all of cre- uh, in, in the entire Bible, not in order. I don't do it that way very often. I'm just doing it today to make the point. I should do it all the time, but I don't because it confuses people. I know my efforts to not confuse people have not been very effective. I've got that. I do it and it comes naturally and intentionally. It's what I do best. Point is, is the crucifixion seven is the salvation seven, if you will. That predates time itself, creation itself. It pre-exists the creation seven. And uh, so, when you start messing with the crucifixion seven, then you are destroying every single seven in the Bible, because all sevens return to the first seven. If the first seven is the crucifixion seven, you better line them all up. Would it surprise you that the one seven that probably without debate, not probably, the one seven without debate or controversy is the most important seven is the one that has been destroyed by the modern church? Not surprised. I do not have my surprise face. done that before and people say that does not look like a surprised face at all. It looks more like a maniacal criminal face. I've had that bracelet thing off now for a couple of weeks. So I'm in pretty good. I just had to check. It's, it leaves a rash on that leg. Okay.
All positions that destroy the integrity of the Passover crucifixion, weak and creation, weak harmony, my goodness, you should be suspicious of them. In fact, frankly, you should outright reject them. They are incoherent. And search instead for the symmetry between the three of them, the Passover week, the creation week, and the crucifixion week. They will have obviously obvious connectability connectivity, and they'll yield the correct interpretation. It's just math, simple math. So I thought I'd get that out of the way. Now, where was I? Oh, 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 before I finish that. One final thought on the crucifixion week. I say this in a different way. I'll say it this way today. If he, Jesus Christ, if he is not always God, he is never God. Think that through. If he is not always God, he is never God. You have to be always God to be God. You can, you can never be not God. If he is not always omniscient, he is never omniscient. If he is never omniscient, then he is not God. If Jesus Christ is ever not God, he is always not God. Does that make sense? I hope it does. So start looking for positions that, that try to destroy. They can't. Try to degrade. They can't. Try to deny his deity. I think you'll find that what we've done to the crucifixion week is a primary example. Any position that claims, that proclaims Christ to be ever, ever absent the absolute attributes of the Lord God Almighty is toxic. It's heresy. Blasphemy that is doomed. And most of these non-Passover compliant crucifixion week things that are out there, these timelines contain subtleties that deny the absolute Godhood of Jesus Christ. You will find they usually tell you that he's not omniscient. He didn't really mean it when he said sign of Jonah. He didn't really mean three days and three nights. What he really meant was about 30 hours, not 72. The sign of Jonah, 72 hours, really something like 30 hours. Uh, Christ didn't really get it. They say he can't count. He can't count or he didn't know the meaning of three days and three nights. Do you think it's a possibility that Creator God himself did not know what he was saying when he said the sign of Jonah But that's what the popular version is today. They have to destroy the three days and three nights, and they have to say Christ didn't really mean that. When you say that about Christ, what have you done to his omniscient? Omniscience. Any position. If Jesus Christ is not always God, he is never God. And therefore, none are saved. There's no salvation if he is not always God. And see me later if that logical progression is not clear to you. Let me help you. Christ must be the perfect sacrifice. Without omniscience, he cannot be perfect. Perfection requires omniscience. Now, this is a real now this time. Not last time was a fake now. Where am I? I say that as if it's not a rhetorical question. Do I know where I am? It changes week to week now, I'm afraid. I'm having the weirdest dreams. I really am. I, 
I've had them many, many times now, the same ones, where I'm building something and it's being inspected. And they're going around telling me, well, you forgot a block here, or you forgot a stud here, or you forgot a joist here, and you'll have to tear the whole thing down, and I'm in a panic. So I'm trying to maneuver the inspector away from places that he can catch me. And it really, it really is an odd little thing that I go through at least once a month now. Don't ask me why that is. Have I ever cheated on a building? I'll tell you, I never cheated on a building. I've never left anything out that I can even think of now. But I have this dream where that's what I'm doing all night long. <laughs> okay, where? what am I doing? I am supposedly answering questions from recent previous lectures. That's what I'm doing. That's where I am. I say supposedly because by all outward appearances it may seem the question has been answered. But all of you know that's not true. You're wise and you're suspicious. Wise and suspicious is a redundancy. You know that are you that are wise that the word of God is got a depth to it that is ridiculously unimaginable. It's a very, very deep reservoir of questions. And questions always begat more questions, as do answers. It's an intrinsic attribute of Scripture. How can you tell the Bible is from God? Because it is so deep, you can spend a lifetime in five verses and never answer all the questions that are there. It also is always testifying of Jesus Christ. If it's not testifying of Jesus Christ, then it is not in the Bible. It shouldn't be in the Bible. That's the test. If you go through the Bible and you find something in one of your little apocryphal books, oh, I'll do it. By the way, where do they get this 30-hour Passover screwed-up mess? They get it from a book that has been rejected as part of Scripture. You get lots of things from those books. If it doesn't have a picture of Christ in it, it isn't Scripture. And if it doesn't have this great, unimaginable, uncomprehensible, incomprehensible depth to it, then it is not Scripture. You would expect that from God, right? We've spent... Some time on Genesis 3, 16 and 17, the sorrow of the woman. So let me start erasing all of this and start putting the rest of it on here. I have been doing a better job, I hope, of putting more stuff on the board for the Internet audience. It makes them happy. So that's why all that's on there. That's why this will go on here, too. I get some pretty interesting letters. Oops. Ah. Interesting letters from people that I, I just have no idea that they're out there. And it always is a, a thrill to see what little piece they grabbed. Because you just never know. So I thought that I would try to put more pieces on the board as I'm going down the stretch here. 
We've spent some time on Genesis 3:16 and 17, which is the sorrow of the woman. The sorrow of the man. Both of them have sorrow. Now, some will say toil. Uh, They don't like the word sorrow. I know that sorrow is correct because the man is a type of Christ and Christ is the man of sorrows. So, to me, it is not a debatable point. We also noted that the serpent has no sorrow No mention of the serpent having sorrow. That is evidence that is absent, but it can't be missed. And it caused the question, why is it that Satan has no sorrow attributed to him? Adam has sorrow all of his days of his physical life. Notice how I said that. He has all of his days he has sorrow. He's going to eat in sorrow all of his days. I know it's physical in a minute. The serpent also is going to have something all of his days. It isn't sorrow. No sorrow. So he and Adam have this phrase right here in common, and they have the fact that one has sorrow and the other does not. Also in common, if you wish to think of it that way. So again, all of his days of his physical life until his body returns to the dust from which it was made. Well, that's interesting because the serpent crawls around in the dust and Adam's body goes back to the dust. And you begin to see this relationship show up between Adam and the serpent. Adam shall eat of the earth in sorrow and his body returns to the dust from which it was made. Notice the absence there of the mention of the breath of life. Why isn't the breath of life discussed? Wouldn't you like to know where the breath of life is going to go? Adam has a living soul. Where does the living soul return to? Remember, the body was made from the dust, and then what did God do? Breathed into it the breath of life. So I have two things. We know the body is going to go to dust. The Bible tells us clearly that it will. Where does the living soul go? The living soul is not made of dust, is it? It cannot, therefore, return to dust. It has no dust in it at all. So where does it go? Genesis 3.14, Satan is cursed above every, above all cattle. So here, we're going to go up here now. This is still under the serpent heading. He's cursed. Above all cattle. And that's interesting. Actually, let me put it here. The serpent is cursed above all cattle and all beasts. Now, we've talked about this a little bit, but I put it on the board so you can begin to start making the uh, cumulative analytics, if you will. Above all, the serpent is cursed above all cattle and above every beast. Dust he will eat all the days of his life. He'll crawl on his belly. Again, no sorrow, but cursed. Cursed and no sorrow. 
Satan does not return to dust. Adam returns to dust. The body of Adam returns to dust. But Satan does not return to dust. So, so many questions. How do, how do we begin to unravel all of this? Well, what's the first rule? Whenever you have an Old Testament question, what do you do? <laughs> There's a baby on a table over there. That's incredible. <laughs> the baby is not at all interested in anything that I'm saying. <laughs> but it's still cool. It's hard to be upset when you see a baby on the table. Looking up, yeah, she's, she's getting motivated. Well, what you do is what we always do when you have these kinds of questions and you want to, un- you want to solve them. You start with the Christology. You find Jesus Christ. Rule number one, find Christ. And that should have been very easy and very obvious. Christ is the last Adam. Adam is a type of Christ. The sorrows of Christ, the sorrows of Adam, the thorns. Christ has the thorn and the sorrows. The eating, the eating of the herbs for Adam, the eating and sorrow for Adam. There's an eating component. Is there an eating component with Christ? Absolutely there is. He's the Passover lamb. You eat the Passover lamb, for goodness sake. He's also the bread of the communion. You eat the body of Christ. Crown of thorn, man of sorrows, that's Genesis 3.18. He's the lamb of the Passover to be slain and eaten. Why do we eat Christ? That seems kind of weird, doesn't it? There's a reason. What in the eating process is so important? Matthew 26, 26 through 29. Take, eat. This is my body. He is the bread of life. Luke 22, 19. Mark 14, 22. Christ also has great sorrow and sweat like great drops of blood. Luke 22, 44. Matthew 26, 36 through 39. He also has the nakedness of Adam. When he's on the cross, there is nakedness there of Christ. It was absolutely uh, An edict that every crucified person was stripped naked. How about, how about, um, thickets? Christ have thickets? Yes, he does. The most prominent, of course, is the ram in the thicket that is the picture of Christ, Genesis 22. 7 through 13. So the correspondence, the relationships between Adam and Christ, plain to see, clearly purposeful. We are commanded by Christ to find these things. That's why you do it first. Attempting to solve Genesis 3, 8 through 24 without the Christologies is futile. It's senseless. So find Christ first. Now, knowing that Genesis 3, 8 through 24 is permeated, permeated with typological referrals, we can now embark on the verses that refer to Satan, can't we? Approach them as if they are literal, because they are, just as they are literal for Adam. But they also contain types and symbols that testify of Satan. The serpent is a symbol of Satan. So we start out with a serpent. So the first thing we could do is we're trying to figure out what does all of his days mean? Why doesn't he have any sorrow? How come he crawls on his belly in the dust? What's that got to do? 
Well, you can begin to see the dust has something to do with what over here with Adam. Let's just take that one on. What is dust referring to to Adam here? It's his dead body, isn't it? So, I have, I have the dead bodies. So, the serpent is going to crawl through the dead bodies. How much dust, how many dead bodies has there been? Why are there dead bodies? Not just human dead bodies, animal dead bodies. The serpent is made to crawl through the dead bodies. Why is God doing that? What's the point? Go back to the serpent. The serpent is a symbol. What's the obvious question? Are there any other symbols that are in context with the serpent? that are alongside the serpent. If I was going to make a list of all the symbols that are in the discussion of the serpent, which one, what others would I have? Let me just read it, just so maybe you can hear it, and you'll go, oh, wow, isn't that interesting? And the Lord God said unto the serpent, that's a symbol, that's Satan. We know it's Satan. We have that in Revelation. And the woman even said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. Now, we also know there's a literal element there, and we'll deal with that some other day, not today. But for sure, the serpent is, of course, a type of, a symbol of Satan. He is the old serpent. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle. So, so far, I've got a snake. What do I have next? Cattle. Snake is a what? Some kind of, has some kind of meaning attached to it. And above every beast. All cattle, every beast of the field. So there it is. What is cattle as it pertains to Satan? What about beasts? Cattle and beasts are also cursed. Satan is cursed, the cattle is cursed, and the beasts are cursed. They're all three cursed. You're cursed above the cattle, above the beasts. So why are the cattle and the beasts cursed? Why is the symbol of Satan a snake? Of all the animals that could have been picked, why is that the one? How is a serpent like Satan? Why does a belly-crawling, poisonous, killing machine seem so similar to Satan? What is cattle as it pertains to Satan? Obviously, cursed and no sorrow are connected. If you have no sorrow, you end up what? Cursed. The woman has sorrow. The man has sorrow. The woman is not cursed. The man is not cursed. The earth is cursed. Obviously, cursed and no sorrow again have to be looked at simultaneously. And eating dust is something that Satan does. Eating herb, herbs is what Adam does. These are the beasts of the field. He eats the herbs. Satan eats the dust. Over here, the earth is cursed. 
over there, the serpent, the snake, or the cattle, and the beasts are cursed. <sighs> so, if I would, I'd make a list that looked like this. Satan is the most cursed, symbolized by a snake. Cattle cursed, beasts are cursed, the ground or the earth is cursed. So I have all of that curse there. Satan has no sorrow, and Satan eats dust. And Adam, of course, is the first man in Scripture identified as a man of sorrow. And Adam does not eat dust, he eats uh, herb. That's the question, what happened to herb? Herbs. Why do we have an H there? Confuses me. Why would anyone name their kid Herb? I've never seen another. I know a Harvey. That's really cool. But I don't know a, 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 a Herbert. <laughs> I must be tired again, huh? Satan eats dust without sorrow all of his life. So put that together. He eats dust without sorrow all of his life. Adam eats herbs in sorrow all the days of his life. Adam experiences physical death. Does Satan experience physical death? Did he experience physical death? Is he a physical being? He is the anointed cherubim. Go look and see what a cherubim is. How are cherubim described? They're in the book of Ezekiel. They're over the Ark of the Covenant. They are guarding the flaming sword. They are very powerful. What are, are, are they described physically or non-physically? All the days of his life, what does that mean? Does it mean differing things for Satan and for Adam are the same thing? For Adam, it means the body is dissolved. What does it mean for Satan? Thus certainly is what Adam's body returns to, and Satan eats dust. Therefore, dust is physical death, the killing of the body, either by decay or by outside force. So it is announced to Adam that he is going to have a physical death. And as many of you have already surmised, Jesus himself refers to this. I can't say this enough. I said it last week. Every time you read Ephesians 5, know that Christ is talking about Adam and Eve. You can find him talking about Adam and Eve all over the place. Of course he would do that, wouldn't he? He is the last Adam. He would always talk about the first Adam. He does. I'll show you two places. Luke 12, 4 through 5. Matthew 10, 28 through 31. I should read Matthew first. It's a little bit more uh, clear. So here we go. We'll start at verse 28. Actually, I'll start at 27. Matthew 10, 27 through 31. This is Jesus Christ. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not Fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Where is the first place in the Bible? Would Christ know the first place in the Bible? Please answer yes. Would he, being omniscient God and the author of the word, being the word himself, would he know the first place? My goodness. 
I even hate saying it. He knows the first place in the, in the Bible where the body was killed. Where is the first place in the Bible where the body starts to decay to death, goes to dust? It's Adam and the woman. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Who is the first one to have his body or her body killed, if you will? Now, you can make a strong case here about force and the ability to force death. And I'm going to do that in a second. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Who are those that kill the body, but cannot kill the soul? But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, or in this case, the lake of fire, Gehenna. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? That's a rhetorical question. So apparently two sparrows are sold for a copper coin. Why only a copper coin? This is God saying this. I can imagine them listening to them. How many want to go into the selling sparrows for a copper coin business? Anybody? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs on your head are all numbers. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Why are we of more value than many sparrows? Just asking. We've got some powerful information there. If one thing is made perfectly clear in the Genesis 3 account that's on the board here, it is that Satan was unable to kill the soul of the woman. He would have liked the soul of the woman to be killed. What does it mean to kill the soul? Christ told you what it means. It's the second death. Don't fear the one that can only only account for the first death or can only have influence on the first death. He cannot kill the soul. Satan was unable to kill the soul of the woman or of Adam. I've said many times, I submit, I, I, I don't think Satan ever thought he was going to get Adam. He, I believe, knew that Adam could not be deceived. Satan could cause the death of the body, and even with that, he had restrictive parameters. The woman had to eat. Ooh, let's put that on the board. This eating thing keeps coming up. The woman had to eat the poison. We have to eat the what? We have to eat the antidote. Why eating? Why can't we just rub it on our faces? Why can't we do any? Why can't we hold on to it? Why do we have to eat it? What does eating do? What's the reason for eating? Why do we eat in the first place? Why couldn't God have created a system where we just get all our nutrition through the ambient air or sunlight system? Why do we have to eat? It's a dependency. You have to breathe. You have to eat. You have to have water. You have to have rest. So he says he is our, we are dependent on him. He makes us dependent. Again, Satan could cause, in a sense, in a detached sense, the death of the body. And even with that, he had restrictive parameters. The woman had to eat the, the, the death, if you will, as did the man. Satan could not kill with outside force. He is left to deceiving. In other words, he can effect a mental property, but not a physical property. 
I inferred, and I hope you caught it, that Christ himself at Matthew 10.28 is speaking of Genesis 3. Actually, I said it outright. The first such a killing of the body. Do not fear those whose efforts only result in the death of the body. That's what Christ is saying. Fear me instead. Don't fear Satan. He can get you to kill yourself. Kill the body. Fear Jesus Christ, the I Am, the Ancient of Days, the one who judges all, John 5.22. He is the one who kills the soul. What he says. So what is the definition of killing the soul? When he says, fear me, I kill the soul, what does it mean to kill the soul? How do you kill a soul? How does a living soul be killed? How does a soul die? Well, let's start by casting out all thinking of annihilation. Most people think killing is extinguishing. Killing is not extinguishing. That's one of the things that has happened in our culture that is really a shame. Killing cannot extinguish you. It can, you cannot be extinguished. There is no annihilation. A living soul cannot be uh, erased. A living soul is what? What is a living soul? What does God call your living soul? What's the first thing he calls it? He calls it his breath. This is his breath. How do you kill his breath? Now, people never pass up a breath mint. That's a good rule for life. People offer me breath mints all the time. I take every single one. I appreciate the, the warning. I don't ever believe they're giving them to me because uh, I don't need it. I assume that I need it. And so, I want to be thankful. But this is God's breath of life. How do I kill the breath of life? Christ is saying, fear me, I can kill the breath of life. That's what he's saying. What's he mean? By its very definition, the breath of life is not subject to contingencies. Consider the construction of the breath of life, the breath of God. I get asked all the time, and I ask all the time, what is a living soul made of? What's it made from? If a living soul could be erased, go ahead, grant the premise, killed, if you will, if you want erasure, annihilation, extinguishment to be killed, then it is never a living soul. Do you understand that? He calls you a living soul because you can never be extinguished. If you were not, if, he, if, if you could be a living soul, then the same thing is what I said previously about Christ. If you could be extinguished, then you're not a living soul. Does that make sense? You don't have the breath of God. You have something temporal. The word of God is definite here. We are living souls. Genesis 2, 7. He calls the beasts, by the way. Oh, my goodness. He calls them the exact same thing that he calls us, living souls. Your Bible will have living creatures. Why does somebody call that creatures? It's living souls. It's the breath of God. Breath is very important, too. Therefore, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul. Can't be about 
eliminating, erasing the soul. It must be about the destination. And the destination is given to us. Gehenna. Gehenna is interchangeable. The place of torment is interchangeable with lake of fire. So he says, don't fear the one who is able to kill the body or whose efforts result in the death of the body. Fear him who can put you into the lake of fire. When was the lake of fire created? For whom was it created? It is created, Matthew 25, 41, for Satan. Now, is there any proximity between the death of Adam's body and the creation of Satan's final abode? Because you have done this, lake of fire is created. Does that make sense on a timeline basis? We'll get to that next week. Just know for now, the lake of fire is what Christ is talking about. Fear me, I'm the one who sends people to the, I'm the one who sends beings to the lake of fire. Who is able to send Satan and his angels to this place? What does it take to do this? Who has the power to move Satan at will, Matthew 4.10? Whose voice can move Satan wherever he wants to move him? Who has demonstrated that capability? Does Satan know? Oh, dear. I might have needed a new box. Could have been out of business right there. No, we have, we have both Dave and Ben here, so I would have been saved by the miracle of editing. Um, Satan knew instantly in Matthew 4, this person's voice can move me. All he has to do is say something and I get moved. I always like to say, how far did he travel? How long did it take him to get back? How fast does he go? Christ proved that he has the power to send Satan to the lake of fire. That means that Christ is the one who made the lake of fire. When did he make it? Did he make it around the time, at the time of the fall of Adam? Fear him who is able, he says. Okay then. The destination is the place of destruction. What causes the destruction of the body and soul in the lake of fire? Or to put it another way, the lake of fire is the place of destruction. What is the process of that destruction? As you know, there are many who insist that the fire consumes the flesh and the soul. Does the fire consume the flesh and the soul? It can't consume the flesh. There is a view, very common, that God will resurrect the dead, the last resurrection. He will resurrect them and he will cast them in Christ, will cast them in the lake of fire where the, where the flames immediately consume their bodies. Why would he bother to resurrect them if he's just going to consume them? How long will it take the lake of fire to consume a body? Ready, Go. Fifteen seconds? That's being, being really generous. So, why would he resurrect the bodies of the dead, put them in the lake of fire just to have the body? It seems like that wouldn't be logical. So, I'm going to say no. 
Obviously, I say no. The fire does not consume the body of the dead. We just covered the definition of living soul, and, and that can't be consumed. We have Mark 9.48, and Mark says in 9.48, their worm never dies. In other words, the worm, the, the physicality, my body never dies. Well, that means it's not consumed. The fire in this final place of the unrighteous is unquenchable, Matthew 3.12, incapable of being satisfied. The fire burns, it's insatiable. The fire burns forever. Thus, its fuel must also be what? Eternal. It can't consume the fuel. This is also a place of darkness. The light of life is not provided here. It's utter darkness. I'm, as you know, I coached at Bartlett High School many years ago now, my goodness. Seems 125 years ago I coached at Bartlett High School. And we're down in the gym area, and I've told this story before, and the lights, the electrical systems fail, and um, we are in a brick enclosure with no windows, and it is as dark. It's the darkest dark I've ever experienced, and you can't see anything. You can't see a thing. There is not one photon of light in that high school down in its bowels where I was. That was freaky. You don't have any sense of direction. So you, you can hear and you move by hearing. This is utter darkness. Complete blindness then. It is a complete total withdrawal of the goodness of God, which is light. Consider today that the sun shines on all men, both the evil and the saved. That's going to end. At some point, the evil has no light. God will not provide light for the wicked. They will choose blindness, and blindness it shall be. Remember those men trying to find the angels at Sodom. Total, complete blindness. That was a picture of the lake of fire. The point being that the destruction of the body and the soul is an endless condition in the lake of fire. Never-ending destruction is the key, the primary characteristic. That's what makes the destruction destruction, is that it is ceaseless. So fear me who can make destruction ceaseless, who puts you into a ceaseless, destructive environment. Fear him who is able to send body and soul into eternal confinement in darkness and unending burning. And that can't be overlooked. Christ is going to end sin. He says he will in the sense that he will send those who seek to be in relentless pursuit of sin to a place of only sin. That's all that's there. Sin. How much sin do they have there? A place, it also is a place of no sorrow. There's not a single person there that has sorrow. Now you'll say to me, weeping and gnashing. Don't associate weeping and gnashing with sorrow and mourning. Sorrow and mourning for one's sin is not to be equated with weeping for yourself. Weeping because you are stopped from pursuing evil is not remorse. Everyone reads that scripture that Judas was remorseful. That's why he threw the 30 pieces of silver. That's not the word there. It's regretful. Judas had no sorrow. 
Why not? Satan has no sorrow. Why not? Satan has no contrition. His angels have no contrition. Mankind that has chosen Satan over Jesus Christ will have no remorse. They are willfully ruthless for all of eternity. There's not one single person in the lake of fire that has any mourning for their sin. Men who take the mark of the beast will choose to worship the Antichrist over the true Christ, and they will never reflect on their decision or regret their decision. And given the opportunity to revisit their choice, knowing the end end result will be uh, what it is, they would still choose the Antichrist, and they would do it again and again and again and again. They would always choose the Antichrist. We're back to two trees. They would always choose. There's never a time they won't. The lake of fire does not change anyone in it. There is no rehabilitation program there. The only thing that's there is merciless people and merciless angels and unfeeling, unsolved, sorrowful beings. Weeping over your fate is sin. So those of you in the crucifixion week, no one's doing it here. Because if they did, we wouldn't let them eat from the buffet. But no one here assigns Christ's weeping to himself. I hope I said that correctly. Christ never weeps for himself. That's self-pity. Does God have self-pity? What is self-pity? It is self-focus. Weeping over your fate is sin. Never assign those kinds of thoughts to Christ. But again, ask why. Why are those in the lake of fire like this? And who do I have there? Well, let's see. I have Satan. Okay. And then who do I have? Let me make, make it more obvious. You see what I'm doing? Then who do I have? I have his angels. And then who do I have? I have mankind. That has followed. So I have, let's see, one, two, three groups here. How interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Serpent cursed more than his angels, more than... Oops, never mind. Why does Satan have no sorrow for those whom he has lied to, those whom he has deceived? Where does this level of hate come from? Why does, why did Satan seek to kill the body and souls of every man he could? That's explained in Ezekiel 16, Isaiah 14. We'll do it next week. I will be like the Most High, he says. I'm going to be like God. Does that mean lying and killing people? Is that what God does? How is lying to and killing people being like God, because that's what he's done. You assume, I hope you didn't, that when he says that in Isaiah, I will be like the Most High, that you thought he wanted to be good. No, he wanted to be this. He sees God as like him in a sense. Killing and destroying people for all of eternity makes Satan feel like God. How does it do that? Why are, at their essence, lying and killing somehow like the Most High? That's what you asked yourself. And next week, we will figure it out. You will figure it out now. 
I can see some of your faces. You're, you're facing, you're doing this to me. I know it isn't a mean face. It's you're mouthing the word that you know. Congratulations. Don't tell your neighbors. Make them think it through. 